Hi guys, it's Annie McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. It's been a long time, but we are now back in business. On behalf of myself, Ben, and Alistair at Informed Performance, we apologise for the break in episodes. All of us have enjoyed some recent work changes over the last few months, and unfortunately that meant a pause in our content delivery. But we have all settled down professionally again, and most importantly, we are back in our flow recording and releasing conversations with the high-caliber professionals that we persuade to come on the show as guests. So again, we are sorry for the intermission, and we hope you'll be tuning in regularly once again to the Informed Performance Podcast. All of us are very excited to be back having these conversations and to be able to share them with you on our platform. To kick off, Ben will be hosting today, so I'll hand over to him in just a second. I hope you enjoy. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. Welcome to another edition of Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Ben Ashworth. Today is a special athletic shoulder episode looking at research unpacked. We're going to be talking with the group who put together the shoulder consensus paper. Now, this was over a year ago now, and actually the episode was recorded a long time ago, but due to uh, the way the world is and how things have gone recently, it's taken a long time to get this out there. So Apologies to the to Ariana and Paul, who waited so long for this. Um, and I'm just happy enough to be able to get it out there and share with you some of the findings from their research. On the show, we've got Ariane and Paul. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank Hello, you. Ben. Hi, Ben. So we're going to be talking about this consensus Paper. So Research Unplugged is going to be looking into this burn consensus statement on shoulder injury prevention, rehabilitation and return to sport for athletes at all participation levels. Um, but before we dig into that, let's get a, a flavour of the backgrounds of these two guys who, who are responsible for the paper. So if we start with you, Ariane, if you can give a, the listeners a little bit of background as to uh, you know, what you do and, and where you come from and how you got involved in this paper. Yeah, thank you first uh, again to host me and having me here. This is my uh, first podcast. <laughs> um, I'm from Zurich. I'm a clinician physiotherapist at uh, Canton Hospital in Winterthur, which is uh, close to the city of Zurich. And I'm a clinical shoulder specialist. I've um, been working predominantly with uh, shoulder and elbows uh, for six years now. Now, And I started my PhD uh, with the topic on shoulder pain, especially in rotator cuff uh, patients and rotator cuff-related shoulder pain um, in 2018 at the University of Antwerp. And um, yeah, I got, into, I got involved in this project by Claire Ardern, the last author. And when she called me and asked me to participate together with Paul, um, 
there was yeah was a no-brainer for me a huge um, yeah how do you say chance to to progress my research knowledge and skills and also to deepen relations and and the you know all the the very exciting knowledge about uh, the shoulder and shoulder experts around the world so yeah (laughs) here we are yeah it's it's great to have you on the show uh we've met before obviously and uh unfortunately couldn't get out to see you in switzerland but i hope we'll manage to put that in place in the future um paul same same question really just a little bit about your background please yeah so i'm also a physio Uh, i qualified in the uk uh in london in 2008 worked primarily in uh the health service nhs and then a bit in sport for seven or eight years um a little bit in mostly in football actually uh soccer for our, our american friends um and then took a role in some doing some education stuff to, just before i moved out to canada in 2017 so did a pgc in healthcare ed as well um when i got out here started working for professor karam khan who most listeners I hope would know, um, was the editor for Clinical Sports Medicine Edition 5, Volume 2, um, and then got moved over onto BJSM as well. So started working as an associate editor. So this isn't my first podcast, but I'm normally on the other side of the mic. Um, And then happened to meet Claire through Karam and started work for JRSPT, which led to me being involved in the consensus work. Um, still work clinically and actually since undertaken this have taken more of a keen interest in the actual methodology around consensus development as well so um, this actually taught me some lessons around things I might not do if we were to do it all again so um, yeah it was interesting like doing this for sure that's uh, yeah it must be a pretty uh, daunting task to try and pull all of this together it's certainly not easy um, just before we start to sort of get into the content have you got any advice either of you for people who are considering something similar in other areas perhaps uh, perhaps maybe things like you say Paul that you might have done differently I've got quite a bit <laughs> um, so I, I actually ended up writing a consensus editorial that was published in BJSM about six months ago um, and has gone pretty well. And that that had some lessons in there that sort of were around just making sure that you're really clear on the questions that you want to ask. So I actually think the number of questions we asked on reflection may have been a few too many, which in a way was good because we got a ton of information. But then when you're trying to drill that down, it's then a bit harder. So I think I, think I would have been a bit more um, specific at the start and and that's always hard when you're trying to get a, a general consensus on return to sport for all shoulder conditions across all sports um but the other thing is like around stakeholder engagement i think we actually did a good job of that in this because we involved a really wide range of people and we would try we were quite conscious to try and get different professions to get different uh, people from different parts of the world so uh, the us and europe where they're is a bit of a split in terms of the way people manage shoulders and we wanted to capture that difference and then discuss it um but yeah they're, they're just a couple of the the main points but if people want to know a bit more then i definitely encourage them to go have a look at the editorial 
uh, and and see what they think because there there are some lessons in there that I think people can use if they're trying to get consensus on a topic in the future. And Ariana, anything that you'd uh, perhaps might have done differently? I think one of the the challenges is also to get people like the co-authors coordinate the co-authors well. <laughs> um, you lose, you may lose a lot of time if you haven't prepared them thoroughly in advance. Like when we sent out our summaries from the discussion, we lost a bit of time because everyone has his own and her own schedule as well. So um, you, you really have to prepare well time-wise. When do we want things back? And of course, we did say, um, set out deadlines, but each individual has his uh, and her rhythm. So I think that's that's very important as well. When you meet each other at the main consensus meeting, then you can try to to set up a good timetable already and then go back to that, what you have um, discussed there. Um, but essentially, I also think is, is the core team that Paul, Claire and I, we were keeping our motivation throughout the whole process very high and we were super fast in responding and and I think that's also you really need to be committed to this project um, to be able to finish it within a reasonable time and I think that's yeah one of the major um, powers that you need to have or just to really finish it off as well. I had a chat with Christian Barton uh, just before Christmas and he he's done a few consensus projects as well and he he said it's a bit like herding cats sometimes and you're trying to keep everyone together and and it's like it's not that easy to try and get that project like through and it does take time and I think that's the other thing is people shouldn't expect uh, everything to happen quickly you know it is something that you do have to plan you can't just get everyone in a room and say well, what do you all think? And then we're going to publish this. It is, yeah. There's like a there's a process that you have to go through, like any research project, um, and you do have to really think about it beforehand. You can't just show up on the day and say, "Hey guys, you know, we're going to vote on on what the best things are." You, you you know, if you want to get a good answer, you need to put the preparation in first. So, so yeah, herding herding busy cats. Some one of my friends said the other day. I think that's uh, that's a really nice way of summarising it. Um, okay, let's let's crack into the the paper itself. And firstly, before we start, I'd just like to say, you know, someone who's passionate about shoulders themselves, I felt found it was really well written and put together. And um, the way it's structured and 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 the way it's ordered with the themes that you use is, was fantastic. Um, let's start by just for the listeners explaining a little bit about this, the, the Delphi process itself before we go into the content itself. Um, yeah, so we, we started um, off with um, getting into the, into uh, research and, and filtering information from other consensus statements and um, systematic reviews and randomized control trials. And we that's the we is Paul, Claire, and I have started formulating potential uh, questions and statements that we put together as uh, questions to then spread in the in the um, shoulder expert community around the globe. 
and there we really try to balance, as Paul said before, um, male and female, as well as uh, all. Tr we try to get in all the continents. And then we had this first round of Delphi, a study that was an online um, questionnaire, uh, with already with different sections. Um, but not not only the four sections, we also had included rotator cuff um, rehabilitation or a specific uh, diagnosis like instability. Um, also, we had included the scapula as a, as a known um, topic. And then after the Delphi round one, we got 42 respondents out of 44 um, to questionnaires and then um, spread questionnaires and then we we synthesized everything we um, tried to or we filtered all the points that were um, not where no consensus was found so not a disagreement nor um, a consensus and then we formulated new questions they were more into like ranking questions or yes or no questions and then we um, set up a second Delphi round and sent it out to the same individuals again. And then after the Delphi round two, we synthesized everything, Paul and I, and created um, like overviews um, for the, the four topics that should be discussed at the Delphi, um, no, at the um, in-person meeting in Bern in November. And um, so we, we then also decided who we set up teams of two um, from the expert that were invited as guest speakers for the athletic shoulder symposium in Bern. And um, they prepared the presentations to then discuss um, as a whole group, uh, point by point. I just wanted yeah. to add as well to that, that when we were doing the literature searches, we specifically try to focus on areas where there was no agreement already because one of the things we see a lot of is people kind of just come and they agree on things that we already know and we knew that wasn't going to add any value to the clinical community so we were like right well we want to find what we don't know so when we're going to get all these people together we're actually going to come out with something that's useful at the end of it and when we, <laughs> I would say when we searched the literature, you'd be amazed at how little there actually is out there on return to sport after shoulder injury. That's bottom line. Like there needs to be more specific studies in this area for us to have really well informed opinions. But we we were looking for those areas where there was like disagreement almost, and that was after the process that Arian just outlined really well. That, that was the thing that we then took to that in-person meeting was like, okay, well, where are these areas of the biggest disagreement and how can we help people in practice to like move forwards when, when they don't know what to do and where the experts are sort of telling them different things uh, or the researchers telling us different things. So when I, I read the paper as well, I, I found it really useful that you broke it into kind of four sections eventually. And obviously you, you've already told us that you know, some things were left out we'll, we'll probably come in come on to those a bit later because I'm quite interested in that but uh, let's go straight in and I'm going to ask some questions based around some of the content um, section one was prevent basically titled prevention is better than cure I love that I love that wording that phrasing um, 
And one of the things that came out of that was that there's a suggestion that there's a place for a generic musculoskeletal screen. Um, but what wasn't agreed on was the kind of frequency of how often this should be performed. So I want to know a little bit about the discussions you had in the group and where was the group leaning towards in terms of the frequency of this kind of musculoskeletal shoulder screen? Well, yet the discussion was really also about screening versus monitoring, um, because do you screen for something that you want to see? The, the major discussion was about screening for a scapular dyskinesis. That's where it all started. And there, for example, we know if you, if you screen for it, you already have it in your mind, and the scapular dyskinesis is predominantly diagnosed by visual, by visual, by your observation. So if you look for it, you will also see it. And that's uh, one problem with scapular dyskinesis, for example, besides that it is very present in overhead sports and maybe um, a natural, normal adaptation to, to the demand. Um, but if we talk about um, monitoring a, an athlete through the season, it is also, we had a lot of discussion that it is important to have it pre-season, to have a reference um, for if there is any injury that you can refer to your inter or like your, yeah, your intra-individual. So you have your pre-season, potentially mid-season or, and then uh, post-season measurements, but it is also dependent really on your risk factors. Like uh, if you have low strength or um, decreased rotational range of motion in one athlete, you might be more prone to screen this person more often throughout um, the season. And depending on the load demands, then also you might screen that person or monitor that person more often. And that's also our paper really um, stepped back from providing too many suggestions for one one case. Um, but we tried to to get a bit, little bit into practice in the fourth section where we have the um, case examples. But as a um, for for the risk management section, we really try to point out that it is very important to have to, of course, have a bit of a red line with your parameters. That's like strength measure, range of motion measures, load measures. But um, there is no clear suggestion from our side when exactly you have to screen or measure them. Yeah, and and the reason for that was we said due to the heterogeneity of conditions and sports, it, it would be hard to give a one-size-fits-all number as to how often you should do it. So, and just to go back a bit as well, when we talked about prevention, there was a bit of discussion around, well, why are we talking about prevention when we're talking about a return to sport? Where, so there's already been an injury almost, and we we agreed amongst everyone that we, we considered primary prevention really important and so we we wanted to touch on it a bit but this was also around secondary prevention and you know how do we stop it happening again so the first thing of return to sport is you don't want it to happen again so we want we wanted to cover it 
Um, and that was where we said, you know, in terms of screening at that point where you've had a shoulder injury, you probably are going to need to be screened more often. And that, that was really the message we were trying to get across. We just don't, we can't say, you know, you should do this every three days or you should do this every three months or something. Cause it really depends on what sport it is, how much shoulder demand there is, and also on the resources of the team and, and how many people they have, you know, if you're, uh, I don't know if you're playing in the NHL, you've probably got like a ton of background staff who are there to help to screen and, and to monitor these things, data scientists and all that. Whereas if you're playing on a Sunday morning and you've hurt your shoulder, you might just have like a mate <laughs> who can watch how many times you do something. And um, we wanted to sort of like make sure that there was a bit of nuance within that and that people weren't necessarily expected to do this like all the time if they didn't have the ability to do it and that they it, it was seen as a like a, a good thing to do potentially after an injury but that was not like an expectation that we wanted to lay at everyone's door so what um paul just said about primary and secondary prevention um is really a point that uh, the team around Marete and Stieg and Martin Martin wanted to point out is that we should create a culture around risk management and a culture around primary prevention um for example with implementing shoulder exercises that potentially prevent from injury that also the athletes get more into uh, I should take care of myself and and learn how to how to deal with with pain with problems etc but also like that culture is really important that there is a bit of a shift towards um prevention and just a comment as well you you used risk management there area and then that was we were quite purposeful to try and use risk management as the term where we could because we know that we can't always prevent all of shoulder injuries, particularly in contact sports, where there's that element of like un the unknown, and therefore we we said, you know, this is what we're doing to try and reduce that risk of recurrence. Um, but we didn't want to use the word prevent where we, you know, and and give that expectation that we were going to stop it from happening completely because we can we know we can never say that. Yeah, and I think that's why it's a nice title, really, you know, and I, I obviously understand the arguments behind using injury prevention or not. But, uh, you know, like I, I felt you you justified it really nicely within the paper. And, and also that division between primary and secondary there, prevention, uh, whatever we want to call it, was was really useful. And I'm sure people like Martin on board, you know, who've gone through these large cohort studies and have embedded themselves in some big projects with, you know, handball. Um, and I've had a chance to speak with Martin and Stig about those things. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that cultural aspect of delivery of these programs and getting getting buy-in um, to these processes is, is a really important part. And it's great that you two, you know, point that out. Um, let's uh, let's move away from the injury prevention topic before we get too into that discussion, and let's move towards. Another one that causes probably a bit of disagreement and some language differences, but uh, we're talking about managing shoulder-specific load in athletes. And I want to be clear here, I really, again, enjoyed this because I've talked with a few people about this. You know, Load management in itself is useless when it comes to, 
to looking at specific shoulder um, you know loads and especially if you're thinking about collisions and contact sports but also really important around you know throwing shoulders and overhead athletes so we know that quantifying internal load is is context specific as well uh, depends on sport depends on all those other factors but you mentioned the kind of use of a shoulder specific RPE um, which seems like a really good generic option you know whether you're in the park the mate or whether you're in an NHL team you can use something that's going to be um, you know comparable across a number of a number of domains so can you just give our listeners a little bit of a kind of example maybe of how you'd apply that in in the in, in the sort of uh, real-world setting? Yeah, the rate of perceived exertion, RPE, um, is one of very good and simple way of uh, exploring how an athlete responds to the training as well as to um, the, the sports or the, the, the game, actually. And you can ask your athlete from on a scale from 0 to 10, how hard was this last training on your shoulder or how hard was this game on your shoulder? And a suggestion is also to start early also with youth athletes. Um, so they get a, a sense and a feel for themselves, for their shoulder, for their exertion. Um, but rather ask a youth athletes maybe once weekly because they might be overwhelmed by us being asked every day. So the suggestion is rather ask weekly, but at least uh, weekly for for all athletes on all participation level is what a consensus was reached in our in our group, for example. And rate of perceived exertion is yet not validated for shoulder. Like we don't know yet if we really get that construct by asking this question. And um, literature suggests to, to also include a fatigue question, like how fatigued is your shoulder when asking exertion as well? Because what you want to, to measure is um, your, your discomfort, your heaviness and your uh, fatigue of, of the shoulder or also your, your mental state. You can also ask um, how, how stressed do you feel, how mentally uh, loaded and this is also very, very important. And it is one of the possibilities to detect um, internal load. And one question of our Delphi round one, I think it was, was um, is internal load monitoring more important than external load monitoring? And there was no consensus, not even a disagreement. So people really have it is it varies so much across experts yeah i i think i think one of the reasons for that as well is that we as clinicians obviously like that objective external load because we can we can really count that fairly well from observation or from gps or whatever we're going to use and it is having the ability to tie the two together which is where we've got that gap and ariane mentioned that it's good to get people into it at an earlier stage so i think if you get younger age groups used to measuring the actual fatigue or the experience of feeling like tired in their shoulder early on, 
then they kind of know what it is when they then start to get into those more advanced age groups where that becomes more important to to monitor those things. And post-injury, it's even more important for them to do it and to do it truthfully because we know that athletes, when they want to play, they might not always tell us what, what the truth. They might they might be like, oh, it's fine, you know, it's a one out of ten. Um so we want we want them to be really truthful with us because the key thing is them understanding that that could actually be an indicator that that injury is getting worse again, and taking a bit of time out now might obviously lead to them being much better a week, two weeks, three weeks down the line. Um, and and we know that a lot of professional teams have these easy capture systems now where they come in after a session, they get asked to rate on their iPad or whatever, you know, score out of ten, and it's just a simple way of them being able to capture it easily and say you know today it was a five today it was a six and if you're the data scientist or the physio or the whoever it is who's looking at this when they come in you can then correlate that score against the external measures that you've captured and then see if they compare as well so if the player is telling you that actually you know my score today was a lot higher in terms of exertion but you've given them the same amount of external load across the session then you can be like well actually is there something going on there and that might prompt you as the clinician to go and have another discussion with them as well around was that actually you know because there's something else going on do we need to do an assessment and that might be the little red flag that actually makes you take them aside as well and and say you know do we need to investigate this because there's a bit of a difference between what you're telling us is going on what you're feeling and what we're seeing in terms of the actual output that you're given um, and it's, it's more of like a, an early warning system as much as anything as to whether the recovery is going well or whether training is actually overloading them as well um, from a primary prevention perspective. Yeah, I mean, from a personal level, I feel like it's um, it's really important to distinguish between uh, what's going on in terms of your overall fatigue level and mental health status and your readiness essentially to perform as an athlete and then your shoulder specific kind of local questions. So, you know, you may see a point where you've got, you know, global fatigue and shoulder fatigue, or you may see a point where, you know, everything else is fresh, but the shoulder specifically is bearing the brunt of whatever's going on. And that is a, is a different, you know, that, that causes a different set of circumstances, different set of conversations within the performance team or within whoever the support network is to try and deal with that in a different way. So I, th- I really, I really like the distinction. I think, you know, where the research is going with that in terms of validation, I, I personally, I don't think I need to validate something like that to, to make, make it really useful in my daily practice. You know, I just get on with it and, and, and start putting it out there and hopefully a group like yours or a research community will research it in the background as we, as we gain daily, you know, great information on shoulders. Yeah, 100%. We know that sometimes research has to catch up with practice if there's an advantage there. So this, the third section of the, the paper is around this kind of key principles for quality rehabilitation. And one of the consensus points uh, that you, you draw out in there is that tissue-specific involvement may be considered, but the pathoanatomic diagnosis should not drive shoulder rehabilitation. Now, it's a great statement. Um, can you explain this consensus point? This was indeed a very interesting time in our um, in-person meeting in Bern. 
we had long discussions and it was not too easy to formulate this statement as well. Um, we ended up with the consensus mainly as rehabilitation should be guided by irritability. And irritability in that sense is how how much pain do you have? Do you have night pain? And how high is your level of disability? And you differentiate between high irritability or low irritability. So lower irritability is no night pain, for example, or pain that decreases pretty quickly, more mechanical pain. But we also discussed, for example, if you have an acute slap lesion, yes, do not uh, load your biceps strongly. Like, um, do, do respect that there might be a, a tissue that is uh, ruptured and, and you need to let uh, the body heal. Um, but also, you should... If you, in terms of um, tissue change, you should not take tissue change as a marker for your pain level or your pain level as a marker for your tissue change. I was just going to say as well, I think from the patho-anatomic perspective, we also know that the, the way that we image things, we're often going to see like these issues if we image them. And we knew that they don't always correlate with the symptoms that we're going to see. Therefore, we said that we can't allow that to drive the rehabilitation. We need to basically design the rehabilitation off of the deficits that we're observing at the time and what what the patient is reporting, not necessarily driven off of what the diagnosis is uh, specifically. So um, that sort of came down to that a little bit more because we know that there's often athletes who are carrying injuries as well from previous and that might be that that does influence our decisions a little bit but it it really did depend on what they were presenting with at the time and we didn't want the clinician to say right well you know the person's being diagnosed with this therefore we must treat just this we need to look at it more as a holistic kind of thing and see what um what other deficits they've got going on what uh issues they've got in their kinetic chain which i think we're going to come on to in a minute um, and then see about like can we actually resolve those and make sure that this isn't going to happen again and is it it isn't always necessarily down to that specific diagnosis why they're getting pain um if that makes sense exactly and also if you get a diagnosis you as an athlete may like incorporate this diagnosis and I am the one with this and that's very that's not helpful for your progression into back to performance um, but also it really important is that we have those um, terms like GERD and ERG and they are normal adaptations to the demand of the sports uh, especially in, in throwing athletes you see also that you have a increase in retrotorsion of the humerus and and this is all good this is we need that to be good in, in that sport. And if we, by coincidence, like if we have an athlete with shoulder pain and then we see structural changes in your either bone or in your soft tissue, then we relate that to each other. That's what we see with rotator cuff 
especially with the rotator cuff, um, all the, the repairs that are going on, that we relate pain to those those changes. And this is probably not going in a, in a good direction. So we really wanted to emphasize the focus on how does the how does the the athlete move how does he perform how does he feel when doing this and how ready is he and how does he manage and learns to control because if you if you say oh yeah you shouldn't you shouldn't move into pain because you have this uh, yeah rotator cuff problem and and tear then the athlete is not in control of his body. He is in he is worrying too much, and then he he might not progress or she. And and so we we need to focus on how does how does the the athlete perform? How does he manage it? And load him progressively towards um, back to back to his uh, level of of uh, sports and that's really really important and that's what we try to to focus here in this section quality of movement over over everything like and uh, is the is the move that's not something that you can necessarily describe in a paper it it comes with experience and and knowing the player as well and knowing how they move normally passing the the eye test i think people call it is like do they are they back to their normal movement patterns and can you see that you know if you if you see someone every day in training you kind of get used to the way they move and if you you can notice those small subtle differences often in in where they're sort of moving slightly differently and and that's not something that we can necessarily put down in this but that was that did come up that they the movement quality is returned to normal is one of the other things that you use almost as a decision making uh, marker uh, from a coach's perspective or the the rehabilitation team's perspective. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 great. Um, what we'll do for those of you who aren't up to speed on on shoulder injuries, and you know, obviously, I, I, I encourage you to read the paper. Um, but if uh, there's some abbreviations that you're not aware of, we'll put those in the show notes at the end. Um, so don't worry about those uh, the girds, the ergs, and the the troms and everything else there at the moment. We'll, <laughs> We'll leave some. Uh, we'll leave some <laughs> links in the show notes. One um, one bridge that we can uh, build here from rehabilitation back to uh, injury risk management is that one of the risk factors for I- injuring the shoulder is a gradual onset injury, meaning there was pain before, and then you have an injury. But the question um, about all the like, tissue as a marker for pain, pain as a marker for tissue damage um, is like, what is gradual onset injury? That's where we start in a way. Because if you have felt pain over a period of time, does this mean there is an injury, an underlying injury or not? And and that's also a very interesting um, point in, in the whole rehabilitation and prevention and maybe a future direction because um, how do we interpret pain? And I think that in different sports, there is a different relation to pain. A swimmer might always feel a bit of pain 
and and thinks yeah it's it's something normal but in a, another sports player is really frustrated when feeling pain in the shoulder and can barely tolerate it so this is really an interesting point in in the whole um yeah in the whole topic of it yeah and i think that sort of hits on on a little bit about the sort of psychological aspects of of you know this rehabilitation process you know how do we dress up the language we use and, and how do we communicate what's going on uh, to keep the athletes buy in and keep them on board um not medicalizing things you know to a degree so psychology is something that's I mean, massively in the whole community at the moment is a big buzzword, but let's specifically try and bring it into kind of quality rehabilitation of shoulders. Um, you know, can you sort of summarize where you feel psychology fits into the management of shoulder injury in sport? Huge topic, but I'm asking you to do it in a very short space of time. <laughs> I think in terms of, not necessarily specifically in the shoulder. I think we should say that psychology is just across the return sport continuum generally. Um, if we if we go into what we discussed in the Delphi, it was quite clear that we had six things that clinicians needed to consider when they're returning someone to sport. And, and those were the six categories that we put in that final section. Um, so we had the uh, range of motion, it was strength, power, uh, rate of force development. Um, Ariane, help me out. I'm trying to remember what <laughs> the brain's going dead. Um, yeah, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Kinetic chain, Kinetic psychology chain. and readiness, and sports-specific. Yeah, and sports-specific demands. Um, but, yeah, so psychological readiness came up as like being one of those six key fundamentals and I I think it was around the player feeling ready alongside all of those other metrics that we have so you know if they've got the range of motion if they've got the power back if they're passing their return to sport test battery that we've decided is appropriate for that sport and they feel ready that was the other thing that was key. And and that feeling is is important because if they pass all these external measures that we've got, but they're telling us something's still wrong, then we we'd be silly to like throw them back in because that generally means something is wrong. We just haven't found it. Or or we need to find some way of like measuring what that is. And and even if it is like a if it is a psychological thing, you know, then we need to do something to address that. We can't, we can't just throw them back into like the full demand of the sport and expect that they're going to flourish because their performance is going to be off, even if they're not injured. Like from a, a our perspective, um, if they're not feeling right, then they're not going to hit their peak. So it's not going to work. Yeah. And I think it sort of works sometimes the other way around as well. You know, athletes will, will have bad experiences, past experience, which, which can influence their psychology around return. So everything can look great. All the objective data can look, you know, pretty good to you as a performance team, but they still don't feel right. And that's, that's based on the kind of historical experience. And sometimes using that objective data and, you know, look, you're, you're great in this. You're way better than you were pre-injury. You're much better on this. You know, everything else is looking great. And 
you cope with that session really well, much better than you did. The technical coach thinks you're going well. Sometimes that can be the thing that actually helps them, you know, helps the psychological piece of the puzzle yeah. uh, as one of those kind of six domains. So yeah, I, 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 I hugely value psychology in there and the, the way you guys have given some examples at the end are, are, is really useful. Yeah, it was clear that we knew we needed to measure it and it needed to be something that we we took account of before we put an athlete back into full training or match play. And therefore, that was why we, it came across in the paper. But as you just outlined as well, it's really also a useful thing for us as clinicians because that's where we can use our soft skills. Because if all of those other markers are moving in the right direction, but the athlete themselves is not confident or, you know, a little bit concerned that might be being their first ever injury and they might be worried about it happening again. It just gives, again, it gives us that signpost that as the, the therapist, we need to do a bit more work with them on that side. And that might be around giving them that extra reassurance, confidence, so that then when we take a SERSI or, you know, whatever other measure of psychological readiness we're going to take that hopefully that's going to have increased and then we can be like oh look yeah they're, they're improving you know they're looking more ready to go back and and that actually helps us to be confident in our interventions also being uh, positive because that's one thing I think we actually do a lot of as therapists but we don't often account for it is a lot of that educational and support side which we're really good at and we don't we don't sort of measure it. We just sort of, we just go, oh, you know, we, we talk someone through this, we gave them reassurance and the person walks away and they feel loads better after that. But we just sort of put that to the side and we worry about all these other problems and um, other outcome measures like that are more objective, but that actually in itself is, is super important. And, and we wanted to, again, to, to highlight that in the paper. Yeah, and, and we also started with the, in the rehabilitation section at the in-person meeting about t talking about building the resilient athlete. And um, we were talking about, uh, like, that's also a, a psychological part, like how resilient are you and the temporary um, yeah, side of it as well. Is it pre-season, mid-season, after injury, before injury? But Resilience is, is a huge word and, and yeah, left open for interpretation. So we also decided to take it away again. Um, but it is, it is a bit about your resilience, your inner, your, your outer resilience. Um, yeah, and definitely also about control. And that's, and again, the bridge back to your understanding of your injury, of your pain, because if you, if you know, how you're reacting or how your body reacts on certain loads and certain movements what is your capacity then you learn how to you learn to control those uh, those pain levels in a different way and i think that's that's one of of a key point as well in your in your rehabilitation if you learn what your body how your body answers to certain um loads then you then you learn um then you you get better you feel more ready to go back to to your training or sports or performance wherever you are and and that's really important also what paul mentioned 
our position as rehabilitation specialists and physiotherapists, how we educate in terms of, of pain neurophysiology. That's a very important topic here, which we could just touch a little bit on, but it, this is, um, yeah, not, not covered th- um, in, in total in, that, in this uh, paper. Okay, so in the paper you had like seven key principles and key principle three was um, do address the scapula in rehabilitation but do not screen for dyskinesis. And I think, Ariane, at the start you sort of mentioned this this buzz topic that seems to create – I mean, there's a whole summit written up about this <laughs> particular area. So let's not write up another summit but, um, you know, essentially – I want to explore a little bit about what was said around um, how to address the scapula and rehabilitation from, from a panel of experts that you were in and around as, you know, it's a really interesting, uh, interesting discussion. I'm sure. I wanted to just highlight. So this, there was definitely a split in the groups of experts on this one. So there was a lot of people who do really focus on the scapula and try and address it as part of the rehabilitation. And then there was a group who were just like, you know, you don't need to worry about it. And, and it's something that is just a natural part of the movement pattern of the sport, or as Ariane said earlier, a physiological adaptation to the demands of that sport, such as in swimmers, or often you see it in like tennis players, except other overhead athletes. But the idea around us saying not screen for it was for that very reason that we think considered it a physiological adaptation. But if you see it and you think that actually you know you can improve performance by addressing any dyskinesis or or poor movement across the the kinetic chain we sort of said you have to think about it in terms of being part of the kinetic chain then you should include it as part of the rehabilitation process so just to give an example if if you've got somebody comes in and their right side is uh, worse in terms of the left like looking at the right versus the left and we want to do a rehabilitation program we want to address serratus and all of those other scapular stabilizers then we do need to like include that as part of the rehabilitation program but not necessarily worry about it if the athlete's performing well and you know they're not reporting any problems you know we don't want to make a problem by screening for it and say oh, actually, we've just seen this, you know, you need to come in and do all this work with us and give them that, again, it comes back to that psychological piece, give them that thing, that worry that there's actually a problem with their body when they're performing at their best, you know. It, just if there's, if there's no problems, don't worry about it. <laughs> Leave it alone. Yeah, and and also to, we, I think at the, at the in-person meeting, um, we ended up deciding that the scapula is not a part of the kinetic chain, it's the shoulder. And you should not, and also we con- we had a consensus about kinetic chain timing. Um, when do you start building up your kinetic chain? And we, we ended up finding um, answers around, it doesn't matter, do it simultaneously. Check with your athlete, how, how does he show, like, how is his kinetic chain? How is the, the lower extremity and the trunk and, and everything? How do that, how does he perform? And then decide upon your athlete, upon his rehab or rehab, where 
should you start with different exercises. But with the scapula, um, you cannot isolate the scapula from the cuff or the cuff from the scapula. It is not possible. And so with every scapula program that you start, you also address the cuff and the deltoid. So you cannot um, think of it at two different sections of your body. And we had a lot of, as Paul said, like it, it was actually quite funny because the whole scapula specific questions in round one, we had uh, like five questions and all of them were not reaching consensus. I have one example, scapula uh, rehabilitation should only commence once a stable proximal base is established. Um, so we, there was no consensus, not even disagreement. Or exercises should activate different scapulothoracic muscles, and um, yeah, there was no there was no consensus. Yeah, and I actually think that's where a lot of the value comes in doing the consensus process. Is we we were able to draw out where those disagreements were, and th- and as I said at the start, that was where we were then able to sort of try and tease apart in the room why that disagreement exists and it's not often that people fundamentally disagree they sort they just have different takes on on the same thing and it's not necessarily that we we don't address a problem if say like the dyskinesis result from an injury you know everyone agreed that you you would try and rehabilitate it is that you don't consider that in isolation and that we don't consider the scapula in isolation and so i think a lot of the time it's just the language and the interpretation around the language that gets a bit of into like into holes like where people sort of say oh no i'm on this side or the other but I think hopefully we did a, a reasonable job of trying to present that to everyone in the paper and giving them a way forwards. Yeah, you can get lost in translation. I try not to talk about scapular dyskinesis. Um, <laughs> you know, I, li- I like to talk about load transfer and like efficient movement and, and, you know, energy leaks essentially. So yeah, any way along that from base of support mm-hmm. to uh, point of delivery or point of impact is a really important component and whether you call that kinetic chain or not it's load transfer essentially yeah, yeah. that's the same and i yeah. and i uh, i had a water polo player come in recently actually um and i had that exact conversation with him around uh he his shoulder was actually super strong and his scapula was okay but it, it was really weak across his like abdominal region and when you got him to do any like high plank or roof rotation or anything and uh, although it's hard to say that's a causal link to a shoulder injury it it improved like his shoulder pain and everything improved once we'd addressed it and it was like okay well you can't you can't consider the shoulder or anything in isolation there's always going to be you know the potential that the weakness somewhere else is putting more strain on the shoulder for them to perform at a high level and therefore, if you don't address those underlying factors, you're never going to get that person back to the position where they can perform at their best. So that that was like a lot of the discussion was around. Not really, you don't focus on anything in isolation. You you have to consider the 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 body as a whole, and, and if there's a problem somewhere, it's gonna. It's either going to cause strain somewhere else, or you're going to get an injury in that place where that where it's weak. Um, 
and and that's just comes back to like fundamental like being a good clinician and, and not just like saying oh the pain's in the elbow i'm just going to treat the elbow you know you you look at the shoulder you look at the wrist you look at the neck you look at the thoracic and then if there's deficits there then we have to plan those like to address those in our rehabilitation process that's all we've got time for today uh, there's going to be a part two so stay tuned for that if you'd like to follow today's guests you can find them on twitter and instagram and we'll give you the links to that you've been listening to informed performance and we hope you enjoyed today's episode you can find us online at informedperformance.com or on social at informed performance for instagram or at informed pod on twitter thanks for listening Just before you, the listeners, disappear, Ben, via Athletic Shoulder, has released an Athletic Shoulder Level 1 course, bringing together 20-plus years of experience around shoulder health, performance, and rehab. If you purchase now, you will save 33%, costing you only £199 instead of £299. You can sign up for this offer on his athleticshoulder.com website to do so.